Good morning, Vietnam! This is Adam Parker of The Post and Courier bringing to you our final episode of Spleto Backstage Podcast, the last one of the season. <laughs> oh, I'm going to miss it. You're going to miss it too, I'm sure. But you can just listen over and over again, uh, no problem. You can clamor for more. Clamor, make some phone calls, people. Get active. Wake up. Uh, on tap today, we have Ivan Caracalla, who is director of the Caracalla Dance Theater based in Beirut, Lebanon, but very active all around the world. And we're also talking with John Kennedy, director of orchestral activities for Spoleto Festival USA. But first up, we've got two Scots, Cora Bissett and Orla O'Loughlin. Cora is the writer and star of What Girls Are Made Of. Orla directed her. Wonderful, interesting combo. We're going to hear all about it. Hi, ladies. Hello. Welcome from Hi. Scotland. Thank you very much. And from your long tour, you're on tour now. We yeah. are. And uh, where were you just last? We've just come from Sao Paulo in Brazil with a little stop back home for a few days. So it's it's been quite a, a whirlwind. Yeah. So how did your story of coming of age in a Scottish rock band go over in Sao Paulo. <laughs> Amazingly well. It I was bet. a real test. We weren't sure how it was going to go. But with the power of subtitles and Cora's extraordinary performance, we had them, um, yeah, we had them standing every night and uh, they couldn't have been uh, more rapturous, actually. It was, yeah. it was fantastic. That's great. Well, for our listeners, we should give just a little bit of background here. Uh, what Girls Are Made Of is an autobiographical show yeah. of Cora's experience in the band Darling Heart when she was but a teenager. Yeah. How old were you when you got 17. Into 17. Yeah. And uh, so it's this, and you were keeping diaries during this period. And you're, yeah. so you're referring back to your diaries and you put yeah. this show together about growing up, I guess. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. I'd never thought about telling it as a story before, even, even though it was, it was quite an extraordinary time in my life. I was just about to leave home. I thought I was just going to go to uni. Um, and I got in this little band and, you know, we did the this sort of the the old school thing of getting your demo tape together and sending it out to the radio station when people still did such a thing. Right, <laughs> and it, it really it feels like a real <laughs> period piece now to say that, you know. And we landed this huge record deal. You know, it was just a whirlwind for the next two years. It was just a crazy, crazy whirlwind. But of course that that ends, you move on, you evolve, you have your life. And it was really only, you know, we're talking twenty five years later when my dad passed away and I was clearing out the the family attic and I came across all these old diaries again and the detail that I'd written in I was such a a religious storyteller I just was writing down every every day I would report on what was happening it was almost like my teenage self knew I've got to hold on to this this is going to be this is going to matter to me at some point at some later wow. date so you knew this. um yeah. it was it was extraordinary to so read you were it all a writer already well, as a teenager in a sense in a sense in a sense I mean, you yeah. understood the power of words you understood that what they could do I guess I on guess, some level even yeah then. yeah because the, the, as I say, the, the detail and just it was, you know, charting your emotions. I think I probably felt quite out my depth in many ways, considering what was happening at the time. We were flung into this big kind of rock and roll world. And I think I just found it quite stabilising to, to just order it all in a diary at the end of each day. And it must have been particularly acute for you in a way, right? Because didn't you answer an ad in the paper? Something? They were looking for a lead singer. Yeah. And you yeah. just 
on a whim, like yeah. answered them, and and then they embraced you, and all of a sudden, yeah, it sounds it sounds like I've made it up. It sounds like no, that's not how it really happens, but it, it really was. You know, small town paper, two wee guys that had been kicking around the band scene for maybe ten years or so, yeah. trying to make things happen. They listed their their musical influences. It was the Pixies and REM and PJ Harvey and the Throwing Muses. A lot of kind of East Coast uh, great influences. Mm, yeah. And I was like, whoa, this is this is my band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it really was. Yeah. And so so you were discovered and you you had all this amazing success, but I guess the album didn't sell quite as well as the record label wanted. No, exactly. Yeah. We we weren't quite the hit that everyone had hoped we would be, the the kind of bright new thing. And it's, you know, it's a very hard cutting time. You know, if that album doesn't hit straight away, exactly. you know, there's the next new band to come along. Um, so we could put it down to many things, but... I, I'm kind of not interested in, in sort of why didn't it work? We had we had an incredible experience. It opened up other enormous experiences in my life and maybe that was all it was actually meant to do. You know, it opened me up to a whole other did world. You, did you sort of, you rose and then did you crash or were you okay when it sort of started to fall apart? Do you know, it all happened so quickly that I think I didn't even properly process it until yeah. y- many years later, actually. I think when... So when it crashed, I was still only 19 and they offered me an option to go solo. Um, This all comes out in the play, so I'll try and not give too many spoilers, but uh, um, we were in an enormous amount of debt due to a a very uh, dodgy manager that was managing us. Another typical Uh, scenario. Another typical, quintessential rock and roll. It would be be sad (laughs) if we didn't have these plot points. Um, Yeah, I think once, once that didn't, kind of transpire as, as I wanted. I, I was actually desperate to get out of it. I think I'd seen too much too soon and I didn't feel like I was being allowed to just grow and work out who I was and what I was creatively. And so I did a huge big U-turn and went to drama school and kind of theatre, you know, landed in my world. So I, I think I could have crashed a lot more painfully had I not found another avenue to, to throw myself You were into. young, you were resilient, you had yeah. options before you, you went back to school and now you're in the theatre. Yeah, yeah. It sounds simple. I mean, I, I think I have had many ups and downs along the way. and But I think, if anything, maybe learning some pretty tough lessons really early on probably did make me a lot more resilient, actually. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, the stage is obviously where you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's fair to say. I've never had a proper job yet. <laughs> okay, good. Good for you. <laughs> so what happened? At what point, Orla, did you get your hands on this script? And hmm. uh, how did the two of you connect yeah. and decide how how this should be done. Well, I remember reading um, a monologue, essentially, was, yeah. um, a long piece that Cora had written. So it was very early on where she told the story. It was one voice telling this extraordinary true story. And it was so vivid and compelling. And it made me cry as well as laugh that I knew, I knew there was something there that would um, blow people's hearts open, actually. And so we started a conversation about what it might be like to work together. And that was a kind of careful negotiation because although we were aware of each other's work, because we're both working as directors, we've never been in the same room together. That's the weird thing about directors. We don't really get to understand each other's practice and how each other's rooms work. We only see the end product. So we had a series of phone conversations and then meetings and talked about the work. And we decided just to jump in and see where it would take us, that there was enough trust there that we do it. And, that, and I, I can't tell you how glad I am that we did. <laughs> I bet. 
And what was it like to relinquish directorial control? Actually, an enormous relief. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think we both were, were aware, oh, this, this could be sensitive. What, yeah. if, what if our styles don't click? Yeah. And, you know, I, I want this to work. I really am mm. wishing it to work. But actually, Orla's such an incredibly gracious, generous, non-impositional, if that's a word, director. She really wanted to support my story and I never felt she was pushing me to, to go down a route I was and I felt it was a really easy relationship yeah. if anything I could just concentrate on being the, the actor and actually letting Orla worry about the, the bigger arc of the piece right, and, and just right. where we needed to shift rhythm and pull back and um, distill things more cleanly and actually it was lovely Yeah. so what about the music I mean there's some serious rock and roll going yeah. on I guess right yeah, yeah. <laughs> serious rock and roll you yeah, name serious. it well, from the early 90s was a rock and band yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we kicked some butt. Yeah, yeah it was good. <laughs> and we worked out, I must have seen them when I was at college. When I was at university, I saw a number of the of the headline bands that Darling Heart was supporting. So I must have seen Cora at least twice uh, on those <laughs> wow. tours without knowing that, you know, we'd meet up again. Wow. But just going back to the story, the thing is, it's so quintessentially about Cora. It's so specific to her journey, but it's also about all of us. Because we've all grown up, we've all had a family, we've all lost somebody, we've all wished for something, we've all been down on our luck. And I think especially if, if you're of an age that we are very young, but, you know, teenagers in the early 90s, that was our tribe. That yeah. was what kind of formed us and, and gave us our taste and, you know, gave us our drive. So I think we, all, we've, we kind of feel like it's all of our stories in, in many yeah. ways. Mm. Yeah. And the times yeah. are all of our times. So I do have one last yeah. question for you. You have kids? I have one little girl. Yeah. One little girl. How old is she? Three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, well, that's still a little young to fully appreciate what her mom has achieved in her life, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Because I, I was wondering if she uh, if she was at all aware of that. Right now, all she knows is mummy goes out to do this show and she calls it work. But all she knows <laughs> is you wear white trainers and you jump about doing that silly dance. Yeah, right. <laughs> but she does know that the song at the end, there's a great big kind of homage to her and to all the women that have shaped me in my life at the end of the show and she saw the trailer of that and there's a line saying she is here she is here and I, I'm singing about her I'm singing about the female spirit I'm singing about all the women that are that are out there trying to be themselves and she she's kind of clutched onto that she says mummy sing 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 the song about me she is here sing, <laughs> sing she is here oh that's <laughs> wonderful well imagine when she's a little bit older mm. she's going to realize what a cool mom she has I hope so either that or a major <laughs> yeah. embarrassment I, I hope it's the former <laughs> oh no it'll be good it'll be good all good <laughs> Thank you, Cora. Thank you, Orla. Great talking with you. Remaining shows for What Girls Are Made Of at Meminger Auditorium are 7.30 p.m. Friday, June 7th, and 2 o'clock p.m. Saturday, June 8th. And now on to Ivan Caracalla. Ivan is director of the Caracalla Dance Theater, which is based in Beirut, Lebanon, and they are bringing uh, 1,001 Nights to Spoleto Festival USA, a very colorful, very grand presentation, a hybrid in a way, a mix of East and West. We'll hear Western music by Rimsky-Korsakov. We'll see all kinds of fantastic costumes. Ivan's sister choreographed the work. His father founded the company. All very interesting. We are on the phone with him now. He is in Beirut talking with us. Hi, Ivan. Welcome to Spoleto Backstage. Hello, Adam. Hello. 
Very happy to talk to you. It's very exciting to talk to you. I think that Spoleto audiences will be um, very interested in, in experiencing this because I'm not so sure Caracalla is very, very well known uh, here in the South, in any case. So we're very excited to, uh, yeah. to host you in Charleston soon. We're very excited to uh, appear for the first time with our U.S. premiere of A Thousand and One Nights, which is quite an exciting ballet. It's uh, tales from the ancient land and showed, or if you want, performed for the first time in a different style. If we can say it's really the, the Caracalla dance style, which my uh, father uh, created, being first a student of Martha Graham and being able to found his company under this style and then intertwining or bringing the amalgamation of the two styles of the Western dance technique, adding to it the identity of the Orient, which brought forth the Caracalla dance style. So uh, your, your father, Abdel Halim Caracalla, uh, studied under Martha Graham. He was a big fan of classical ballet, and as you said, I guess he's combined these different styles. And your productions tend to be pretty big, and you're focused on storytelling. You do a lot of showing with costumes and movement and sets, I think. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about That's how correct. the company has evolved over the years. I mean, you're the on- are you the only large dance troupe of its kind in the Middle East, or just the most prominent? I think we're, we're, we're the most prominent dance company in the Middle East, uh, or at least the one that has performed the most on the world stage. The company has really evolved from being focused just on choreography to then developing into the, the costume designs, the set designs, the, the video and projection, uh, the lighting design. And really it has moved from simple ballets to quite eloquent and elaborated full-blown productions of oriental ballet, if I can say that. We are a company of 60 people visiting the uh, Spoleto Festival. We have a, a, about 35 to 40 dancers in addition to actors and singers and our management team. And we are celebrating our 50th anniversary and that's what makes it exciting for us to return to the U.S. as part of our world tour and present this production. Wow. Well, tell us a little more about the production itself then. It's uh, elaborate, as you said. The inspiration is the classic folktale. Uh, story, a set of stories, really, uh, A Thousand and One yes. Nights. How did you approach yes. that, the material, and how did you adapt it for this purpose? Well, as you know, A Thousand and One Nights is a world-famous story. Everyone knows about it from, from China to, to the United States. When we think of A Thousand and One Nights, we think of Sherazad. When we think of Sherazad, we think of the music from Rimsky-Korsakov. Right. And uh, uh, really, the stories are... are quite prominent, especially in, in, in this part of the world where we are, the, the, the East, the Far East, the Middle East. So we took the music from uh, Rimsky-Korsakov, the Shahrazad, and we took also the music from the Bolero of Ravel, and we reorchestrated these two uh, compositions with Oriental instruments to give them our, the flavor from, from our land and to be able to incorporate them with the visuals which we would be projecting through the costumes, the dance, the, the, the scenography, and to allow the music to go hand in hand with the, the, the sight and sound to go hand in hand together as a mix between East and West and as a fairy tale coming out from the Orient, but really it's a worldwide, worldwide fairy tale. And I think the audiences will be pleased to, to hear for the first time a new Rimsky-Korsakov Shahrazad and a new Bolero of Ravel 
uh, dance to, to a different style of ballet, intertwining and putting together East and West, be it, be it through the style of choreography and execution, or be it through the music and the composition. Brilliant. The company was founded, I think, in the 70s. Is that right? How have you navigated all the political turmoil? Well, that's, that's a great question, and this is really a great story about the Caracalla Dance Theater and my father who founded the company and who is still currently the artistic director. The company, as you said, was founded in, in the uh, late 60s, beginning 70s, and as soon as it just started to, to appear and approach and uh, really formulate and develop, the Civil War started. Right. Um, and unfortunately, during the Civil War, Beirut and all of Lebanon was torn down, was divided, was separated. But the Caracalla Dance Theater was able to continue. It had people from all different colors and races and religion in the company itself. It always adapted a cultural identity, never a political identity. It was performing during the war within Lebanon, in different parts of Lebanon, or outside of Lebanon to keep portraying the civilized image and the image of peace and, and culture and identity and beauty. And the most important, even inside of the Lebanon, when the different war factions were warring together and, and fighting as, against each other and killing each other, Caracalla was allowed to travel from one side to the other side of town, to the south, to the north, to the east, to the west, within Lebanon, across all divisions, because all the Lebanese came together and recognized the identity, the importance of this company, and how despite the war, despite the hardships, despite the division, this company not only continued performing in the Lebanon, but also continued performing outside, not to stop. And this was the, the will of my father, I guess. This was, he was, he's a young boy who came from a very rugged and rough background in, in the village of Baalbek. Baalbek is called Heliopolis also. It's the city of the sun. It's the where the Romans built their temples of Jupiter, Bagus, and Venus. Mm. It's an amazing place that holds festivals every summer. And growing up in this atmosphere, he was very impressed and very inspired by the arts and culture. And that's why he left the Lebanon after being a pole vaulting champion and a sport and athletics. He left it all behind. He went to London. He studied dance, came back, founded this company, and developed little by little, and was able to survive the Lebanese war something that not many institutions or organizations were able to go through. The great thing today, if I can say about this company, is that it not only does it portray the, the culture of Lebanon and the Arab world and the high standards, but also it has a school of over 1,500 students, which is run and directed by my sister, Alisar Karakalla, who is also the choreographer of the company. And this school, over the last 15 years, was able to change the point of view of dance in Lebanon and to make it more acceptable and make it something, uh, an institution, make it something accepted and agreed by all the, 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 the community, which 10, 15 years ago or 20 years ago would not allow their children to go and learn dance. But now they all love to come to Caracalla and learn dance because they've seen the power of culture. They've seen how through arts and culture you can break down barriers how you can unite people instead of divide people, and how you can always transcend and portray this message of beauty, of culture, and of civilization. Well, Ivan Karakala, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you uh, across the ocean like this, and, um, and we look forward to seeing the production, 1001 Nights in Spoleto at the festival coming up in Charleston. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. 
thanks a million, Ivan. And uh, break a leg. Good luck with the show. It was a little tricky to get him on the phone uh, at this great distance, but we did it. We did it because we care so much about you, you dear listener, you. Caracalla Dance Theater is presenting 1001 Nights at 7.30, Friday, June 7th, at the Gilliard Center, and again at 8 o'clock, Saturday, June 8th, and finally, 2 o'clock p.m., Sunday, June 9th. John Kennedy, pillar of Spoleto Festival USA, institution, California resident, modernist, fan of contemporary music, coordinator of the Music in Time series for Spoleto Festival, conductor of the Spoleto Festival USA Orchestra, the guy in charge of auditioning all those young players over weeks and weeks before the festival begins in multiple cities across the country. John Kennedy, director of orchestral activities for Spoleto Festival USA. Our own Bradley Fuller has a chat with the man. John, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. It's good to be here. You're clearly involved with a lot for this year's festival, so Mm -hmm. taking a broad look at it all, what has you most excited? You know, it's the breadth of the program in terms of how much variety of great musical work there is and how there are connections between pieces that that um, are surprising coincidences sometimes. You know, and for me, in seeing the whole thing come together over many months, it's always uh, a joy for me to see sort of like the, the big picture curatorial view of the connections between the concerts. Did you have any key musical ingredients that you wanted in place for this year's season? So maybe a certain topic or a certain theme, maybe a certain type of musical expression that served as a, as a seed from which everything else kind of sprouted. Well, not exactly because there are so many different things that sort of deserve that treatment, you know, and so different programs come to sort of have a context in different ways. I think for me, because this is like the first year in 10 years, I'm not conducting an opera. So to use my time wisely with the festival and maybe do some more ambitious projects on the Music in Time series, we're doing, you know, two programs for chamber orchestra of quite challenging music and they're, they're major works, you know, to, to bring to the festival, uh, major compositions that we've never done before. And so that's one way that influenced my own planning and choosing repertoire was that I knew because I wouldn't be doing an opera, I'd have the time to invest on these other pieces. But still, even with the Music in Time series, I was looking over the, the listing of all the pieces and see that all but two are from the year 2000 or after. Mm-hmm. Do you find it challenging to build a program of such recently written works because I'm guessing there's not as much literature on them, the recordings are harder to come by, probably not in public domain or anything like that. So right. this isn't as easy to, to research or to program, say, as a Beethoven symphony. Is that hard? You know, I'm a composer myself, obviously, and so I am in touch with this little world of composers that's there, you know, and frankly, it seems like there are more people composing music than there ever have been. And so, and there's a a lot of great initiative being done by younger composers, and I've always taken great pride with the Music in Time series and on identifying younger composers and sort and featuring their work, and then being able to sort of say, ten years later, you heard it here first, you know, or early on, like doing some American premieres by composers who then would go on to have real significant international recognition. Do you sense that in the public, in a larger sense, that people are more? receptive maybe to new and contemporary music 
in recent years than they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago, or is that about the same? I, I think in a way it's somewhat the same. I think we've built an audience for it here, to be sure, in that you know, some years when we've done a contemporary opera and a traditional opera, the contemporary opera has sold just as well as a traditional opera. And yet it, it's, it's always a process. And, and, and the process is also abetted by like Jeff Nuttall in the chamber music series at Dock Street because he's performing a lot of um, quite contemporary repertoire and edgier things than, he ever, than, than were ever on that series in the past. And I mean, even like the last couple of years, he, he did some things that would absolutely be at home on the Music in Time series. Have you learned a few techniques to maybe um, overcome resistance people might have toward newer contemporary music, ways to kind of make it uh, more accessible or more enjoyable or just to kind of maybe eliminate some of that fear or... Yeah, I mean, that's that's actually always been my mission as an artist, you know, and, and, and ever since we started the new music series here at Spoleto um, is to reach people and that, that the concerts should not be an esoteric experience for people in the know. And I have always um, told audiences that you, you, there's no prerequisites required and just your ears and your open mind and your emotional response to a piece of music. So... I've always tried to create a welcoming environment with the spirit um, that everybody can get something from the music. I've also read in your biography on your website that you have a mission of presenting music of all eras as a strategy for environmental and social consciousness. Do you think this social or environmental role beyond the music itself is a responsibility of the job of conductor and music director? I do. I actually consider that part of our job <laughs> description is that music reminds people that beauty and generosity are active forces in the world. Well, John, thanks so much for that insight there and also for uh, sharing otherwise today about Spoleto Festival. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks, Bradley Fuller. Thanks, John Kennedy. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, our suggestions for what remains of Spoleto Festival USA. Friday, June 7th, 5 o'clock, Westminster Choir. Pristine singing, a cappella style. All kinds of uh, repertoire. Check it out. Uh, Mark Turner and Ethan Iverson find each other and improvise and make beautiful jazz music together at 7 o'clock, Friday, June 7th, in the Simmons Center Recital Hall or try The Fever. The Fever is a very innovative play, audience participation, but don't be too scared about that because you can do as much or as little as you want. And there is one at 5 o'clock Saturday, June 8th, another at 8 o'clock Saturday, June 8th, and another final show at 2 o'clock Sunday, June 9th. And don't forget about the finale. The finale stars uh, Curtis Harding as the headliner, and uh, a couple of local musicians as well, Benny Starr and the band The Artisanals. And that gets started at 5 o'clock Sunday, late afternoon, June 9th, in a brand new location, a brand new venue for Spoleto Festival USA, Riverside Park in North Charleston. Spoleto Backstage is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer is A.T. Shire. Project director is Sherry Hutchinson. Special thanks to Jesse Bagley and Jenny Willett of Spoleto Festival USA. 
The production is made possible by the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Original music for the podcast is by Nick Jenkins. Special thanks to the College of Charleston for hosting interviews and to the Gilliard Center for accommodating this makeshift studio of ours. If you want to hear us every time the podcast comes out, subscribe to NPR One, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, thepostandcourier.com, southcarolinapublicradio.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review us. Give us high marks. You better. Wang the gourd, people. Wang the gourd. For Spleto Backstage, I'm Adam Parker of The Post and Courier. Wow.